Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice. And I'm very pleased to have two special guests today to talk with me about a very hot topic in the insurance space right now, uh, which is how ESG initiatives intersect with the insurance space. So I've got with me today, Emily Mayer, who's a partner with Woodruff Sawyer and is very knee deep in the M&A space. So welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And I've also got Wayne Imry, who is the focus group leader of the London Market DNO for Beasley Insurance. So, Wayne, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you. All right. So, why don't we dive right in and give our listeners a, a quick overview of what ESG is and why it's become such a hot topic in the last year or so? I mean, put simply, ESG is environmental, social, and governance. Uh, which is a very wide range of topics all put into some neat letters. <laughs> Rightly so. Are there any meaningful or standardized metrics to measure ESG compliance and performance? Hear what Wayne has to say, because it might be different in London and Europe, but um, MSCI is sort of the market leader over here. And it's, it's interesting because it doesn't so much measure compliance or performance as it does risk. But Wayne, you may have a broader answer. There's definitely different rating agencies out there and there's different ways of looking at it. Um, There's more global standards becoming more prevalent, but it's still an evolving space. Depending on which service we look at, which which rating agency we use, and depending on how they, the methodology around how they capture that data, we are seeing some varying levels of responses and varying levels of rankings and ratings. So it it is an interesting area. And I think because it is evolving, and we are slowly getting, uh, as an industry, we're getting our, our heads around it and seeing different levels of criteria and things being captured. It, it, it continues to change. Some of the main approaches that we are seeing, though, are, are sort of you know global indexes, industry indexes, peer-to-peer comparables, set own corporate history. So whilst there, there are good measurement tools out there, it does continue to evolve and, and continue to, um, to change um, as we move through. Yeah, I'm really struck both of you use the word evolve because I think at its core, when I first started to learn about ESG, it was corporate responsibility. We want to be perceived as a good corporate citizen. And it seemed like the E, the environmental, was the initial driver. We're going to show that we're a green company and that we're worried about climate change and we're reducing carbon emissions. And then over the last couple of years, it really has, in your words, evolved. And we're looking a lot more about diversity, equity, inclusion, employee welfare, cybersecurity. You know, it really has morphed into this gigantic, important corporate identity, but in touching many different areas. And so for that reason, it's hard not to notice that governmental regulators have become quite interested in this as has the plaintiff's bar as companies are out there trying to really enhance their brand around ESG. So why do you think that those stakeholders have really taken an interest in this space? I think from a regulator's point of view, it's really around 
improving the focus on all of those areas, the, the environmental, the social, the governance side of things, providing transparency, looking at disclosures that are being made to the street and what information is being given to investors to make their investment decisions. The overall goal of improving all risks from an ESG point of view and improving just the, the worldwide exposure. And I think when you look at the plaintiff bar, you have the other side of the area. They're looking for the underperformance or the failure or the incorrect disclosures or the investment impact on failing to execute or not doing enough in this area. So you've got two sides of the coin, but very much the same focus. And so is good faith compliance enough in terms of the disclosures as well as the public statements? As you said, Wayne, you know, the, the plaintiff's bar is certainly going to be paying very careful attention as to what you're putting up on your website and whether you're living up to the standards and goals that you're identifying there. So is good faith compliance going to be enough to box out liability claims here, do you think? Probably not, in all honesty. I think where we are at the moment, and we talked about how the area continues to evolve and, you know, and it is all part of that process, good faith compliance is probably the best that's available at the moment. And, and you know, looking at what the regulators are coming out with, they're not necessarily looking or geared up to second guess what's being disclosed. And, and in fact, disclosures coming from well-meaning companies is probably a good thing, but obviously it's going to give the plaintiff bar the ability to challenge and scrutinize what's being disclosed, whether those good faith compliance disclosures are enough. And I'm sure we'll see litigation surrounding those. Yeah, I think one of the the challenges there with the litigation is this is all going to be very fact intensive, which of course becomes a very expensive undertaking, right? To defend. So Wayne, let me pose this question to you too. What impact is that going to have on how the DNO market's going to respond to this risk exposure? So DNO market is obviously looking at this with a keen eye. It's another area of potential litigation. It's another area of potential heavy regulation and just another area for our insureds and our client base to potentially fall foul of issues, either make trips on disclosures or not disclose enough or not actually do enough in the whole entire area. And, and I think you know we'll see litigation around that and, and the DNO market is aware of that and are starting to, to scrutinize that ESG and ESG focuses and policies, procedures, governance on all of their risks that, that come across the desk. Are you seeing companies that have particularly high profiles, you know, risk profiles in terms of industry, or is it really a case by case and looking at what representations are being made and what processes in place to measure the success of those initiatives? It's a bit of a mix. We look at, it's two ways of looking at this, I guess. There's one, the companies that are ESG focused and are doing lots of things around strategy and initiatives and improving their ESG profile. That's a good thing. For starters, we believe that those risks will probably outperform others over time, but it does raise the threshold for potential things to go wrong and things to be missed and disclosures to be challenged, especially you know anything that's being made to the street and, and that could be scrutinized. But also the other side of the coin is that those risks that aren't focused on ESG, not it's not part of their the high up on their agenda, not being push from the board down. We believe that those will likely be underperformers over a longer period and will probably be those risks that run into other issues under around underperformance and, and probably create more exposure to, to DNO insurers. 
And those companies, I assume it's going to be harder for them to place their coverage and maybe a little more expensive than those that are doing ESG well and are able to present themselves well in the underwriting meetings on that point. Yes. I, over, like I say, over time, I think we'll, we will see that. We believe there'll probably be a quite clear divergence between those that have been focused and have been doing good work in and around ESG as a, as a focus area. They'll begin to outperform their peers. They will not run into as many troubles as, as the companies that haven't taken it as seriously and who are starting to underperform. So those outperformers should in turn benefit from improved terms, conditions for their policies, premiums, SIRs. But at the moment, it's a little bit early to tell. But I think over time, that's what we'll see. That's great. So one last question on DNO before we uh, transition over to the M&A world here. Are DNO carriers looking uh, and underwriters looking more carefully with respect to the board composition? In other words, is it really important for boards to have diversity on that board, not just in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, but also skill sets. Because as we said at the top here, ESG touches on lots of different areas and different disciplines. So are the underwriters looking carefully at exactly who's serving on that board and what talents they bring to it? Absolutely. Yes. We, you know, and I think as an industry, we've been focused on this for a number of years now. We spent a lot of time scrutinizing the composition of boards, also looking at the next level, the, the management and the executive levels of, of corporations. And we want to see that. We want to see the right composition. We want to see the right skill sets. We want to see the right diversity. We want to see the right blend of, of gender, race and experience and everything else. And I think, as I said before, you know, those companies that really focus on that and have the right composition of their board will outperform the others. And I think the skill set thing is, is really coming to the forefront at the moment, especially with the, the amount of macroeconomic issues going on in the world. And having the, the kind of broad spectrum of skill sets on the board and having access to those skills is helping those, those companies navigate some of these issues. Let's hope that at least one board member knows a little something about cybersecurity, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Emily. How has the focus on ESG issues made its way into the M&A space and all the work that you're doing right now in placing reps and warranties insurance? I think looking at it from a wider than rep and warranty insurance perspective, we've seen it coming in a few ways. We've seen ESG activism, you know, where companies are being forced to divest or acquire because of their ESG profile by activist shareholders. And we think we'll probably see more of that, especially in the SPAC market, where so many investments have not gone well. The other thing I think it's potentially really impacting on a wider basis is credit rating, right? So now that ESG is sort of influencing credit rating and the availability of money has changed with interest rates rising, I think it's actually going to impact. And, you know, my understanding is and this is anecdotal to a degree, but it is, you know, it is easier to raise money for us to acquire a strong ESG candidate. And, you know, there are some places where you will find it incredibly difficult to raise money, for instance, for a carbon-based industry. So I think it will have an impact there. And then more sort of micro around sort of record warranty issues, if you like, and diligence. What's interesting was Bain and Company did a, a survey recently. And I think this sort of sums the evolving nature, that about 11% of respondents said that they actively diligence ESG issues, 
but about 65% of respondents expected that they would start doing that in the next year or two. So we're very much, I think, on the cusp of how it's going to impact M&A from a very specific rather than the wider world area. Can you give me a couple of instances of that increased diligence? What are they doing? What are these companies doing to get comfortable with the ESG representations and policies that are being made in the early stages of the transaction? From a rep warranty position, it's interesting. We are seeing it in reps, but we're also seeing it a lot in covenants and behavioral covenants. And we're seeing it sort of potentially trying to creep into MAE clauses. How successful that will be because it's such a amorphous topic, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to bring an ME at the best of times, but it's interesting that we're, we're seeing it there. And from a rep and warranty perspective, obviously covenants and MEEs aren't really impacted. We are seeing it come up more in reps. I mean, we saw it come up more in reps after the Me Too movement, right? Yeah. Where we suddenly started to have meaningful reps about behavior and we started to have meaningful diligence about behavior. And I suspect it will evolve in the same way that that has. Yep. Probably again with cyber in particular and privacy policies, right? Right. So in any M&A transaction, obviously company valuation is a significant driver of the transaction. And so what, what are we seeing on that issue intersecting with ESG on company valuation? And is there a difference between a company that is advertising itself as a ESG driven versus ESG informed? Sure. So I think this is a sort of endless and fascinating topic because one man's treasure is another man's trash. And I think, (laughs) you know, when we talk about ESG driven versus ESG informed, I think we're talking about is the acquisition ESG driven or is it ESG informed? And I think in my head, that means if it's ESG driven, we are literally buying this target to improve our ESG position. And if it's ESG informed, we're buying this target and we're hoping it won't make it worse, right? So they still play a part. And I think what's interesting, because this is such an amorphous topic, is for one person, the same company is an ESG driven acquisition. And for another, it's an ESG informed acquisition. So it's going to be more valuable to one than the other. And I think while the matrix that we have, and I think Wayne elaborated on how many there are, but the ones that you know we see most are more about risk evaluation than actual good citizenship, right? So you can be a big polluter, but as long as the rating company thinks that you're managing that risk well, right, or it's not going to have a big impact on your valuation, then you get a good score. Now, that doesn't mean you're necessarily a good acquisition from an ESG perspective, right? Or that that value is going to hold when you're sort of integrated into a a wider thing. So I think what I'm hoping is that we'll see a much clearer set of matrices for beyond risk as to what is a good ESG score. For all those entrepreneur listeners that we have, you've just identified a couple of businesses that can be developed and formed to become very profitable very quickly. Um, So we're just about out of time. So I want to give each of you a parting shot here. What are one or two tips that you have for our listeners about how to be perceived as a stronger or more favorable risk when it comes to ESG issues 
and what benefits will our listeners have by following your advice? So Wayne, why don't you kick it off? I think the the main tip really is sort of embed it, embed ESG governance, you know, the governance side of things in all of your key decisions, all of your key decisions that you're making from the very top down, from the board to the exec, right through to the, the operations and the financial decisions that you make and the customers and suppliers that you deal with. So really it's kind of embedding it just into into your the normal thought process around all, all key business decisions. And over time, you'll start to see that you'll outperform peers, the benefit from less litigation, less and, and in turn probably more favorable terms on on your insurance. And we're already seeing the market, the DNO market respond early on with some additional coverage grants that are coming in for, for those ESG focused and favorable profiled companies. There's additional capacity out there from different types of investors seeking to support good ESG risk profile risks. So there's additional capacity available. So I think the, the market will continue to respond to the evolution of, of, the, of this exposure. And I think those that outperform and are doing the right thing will, will benefit from that. Terrific. Emily, what about you? For those who are out in the market, buyers, sellers, what do they need to do to be more favorable on the ESG front? Sure. So I think similar to what Wayne said, that it is very strong and that there is very strong board oversight specifically, right? That they are very connected to what is happening in the rest of the company. It's nice to have initiatives, but the sense that the board is actually seeing and driving that, I think is very important. And then also management attitude. We can have all kinds of lovely things, but if management at senior level are rolling their eyes, it just doesn't happen. And that's going to show up in diligence. That's going to show up in the conversations that you start to have once you start probing a little deeper into company. So I think, especially from an M&A perspective, greenwashing isn't going to cut it. <laughs> all right. That's a great tip to end on. Don't greenwash because then you're going to be submitting a claim to Wayne and uh, life's not going to be good for you, right? <laughs> Well, thank you, Wayne and Emily, so much for joining us today. This is certainly one of the newer and emerging topics. We'll be very happy to have you back in a a year or so and see where things are headed there. And thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast. Or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.